It's Psychology Month here at the CPA. On our website, our social media, and here on the podcast, we're going to spend February highlighting psychologists across Canada who are part of the fight against COVID-19. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association. Welcome to Mindful. We're kicking off this month with Dr. Stephen Taylor, a professor and clinical psychologist at UBC. A few years ago, Dr. Taylor realized that there was precious little literature about the psychology surrounding pandemics, and he set out to to change that. His book, The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease, was published in October of 2019. This has made Dr. Taylor one of the most in-demand experts throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and something of a Nostradamus, or maybe a Cassandra. We'll ask and find out as Dr. Taylor joins me today on Mindful. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm sure your time is at a premium at the moment. (laughs) It's been an interesting, well, 15, 16 months, i got to say that. (laughs) No doubt. Uh, Now, and that's kind of obviously that's why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, you wrote the book on pandemics just before the pandemic actually hit. And uh, was that a case of being in the right place or wrong place at the right or wrong time? Or was it uh, some sort of actual clairvoyance that you had in this? <laughs> yeah, dumb luck. Um, it, uh, I knew a pandemic was coming. We all did, but I didn't think it would be quite so soon. However, I remember in July of 2019, as I was just wrapping up the book, and it occurred to me, oh, wow, what if a pandemic occurred tomorrow and the book isn't ready? Wouldn't that be disappointing? I remember rushing to get it in. And then when it came out in October, I thought we'd be waiting for a couple of years before a pandemic. And then suddenly Wuhan erupted. So, yeah, it was dumb luck. Yeah. Uh, well, it has made you uh, certainly somebody who's very much in demand uh, as the as the person who has put together all this information. And in going through the book, it looks like virtually everything you say is likely to happen during a pandemic has actually happened. Is there anything that surprised you uh, that you didn't think would happen the way it has, but has happened differently than than you would have predicted? Um. What really surprised me, I mean, the glib answer is toilet paper. I was expecting panic bombing, but not toilet paper. But the serious answer was, um, what really struck me was that all the phenomena that had been described previously unfolded as if like clockwork during 2020. It was, that was the really surprising thing. You know, it's it's one thing to, to synthesize the the historical literature and the research literature and say, well, X, Y, and Z are gonna happen, but it's a completely different experience to actually see those things unfolding. And so that was the astonishing thing, that everything that has happened before is happening in during this pandemic, with the exception that everything is happening on a grander scale and faster because of the 24 seven news cycle and social media and the fact that everyone is digitally interconnected. Yeah, I found I found it amazing to read the very first paragraph of your book, which describes the 1918 Spanish flu and uh, a young man who was eight or nine, I guess, at the time uh, and saw 
everything closed around him. His church closed, even though the clergy were complaining that it was closing and he couldn't go to school and his mom and his sister died in his house. Uh, and then there were people who had to actually be uh, you know, taken in by authorities because they were transmitting the virus but refused to stay home and all that kind of thing. And I thought you could really write that today. There is almost no difference at all. Yeah, it, it's astonishing that uh, the similarities, including even down to the Manishe, the rebellion against wearing masks, that has happened before during the Spanish flu as well. Um, the rise of conspiracy theories the conspiracy theories we're seeing today with regard to COVID are essentially recycled conspiracy theories that were seen during, say, the Zika virus pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. Same old, same old. It's remarkable. Now, would you say, though, that they have been accelerated? You said that a lot of uh, things that have happened have been accelerated because of the 24-hour news cycle, because of social media and that sort of thing. Are the conspiracy theories larger, more prevalent and spreading faster than they have in the past? Or is this really a, an echo of, of what's happened before? Uh, a, a bit of both. Uh, previously, conspiracy theorists used to live in their little silos where they would largely communicate th with one another by you know, places like 4chan and 8chan. They didn't really have a large voice. But then you've got a political leader, Donald Trump, who starts espousing cons conspiracy theories, who starts giving them a voice and prominence. And of course, other people start getting curious. And so suddenly these conspiracy theories are a lot more um, widely known than they, they would have been otherwise. But you know, they are echoes of the past. They are the, the same kind of idea. Even if you go back to the 1918 flu pandemic, there are conspiracy theories back then that it was a bioweapon. Uh, and we're seeing this today. I, I suppose that back then it wasn't uh, Bill Gates and George Soros trying to microchip people. It was, uh, you know, something entirely different in 1918. There was this um, very interesting article in the New York Times from 1918, I think. I have a copy of it somewhere, where they cited one of their health authorities who um, was giving voice to the theory he heard, but he thought there was some credence to it, that the Spanish flu was being caused by German U-boat submariners coming to shore in Manhattan, getting out of their U-boats and going into cinemas, spreading germs. <laughs> uh, he was giving voice to that conspiracy theory. Uh, so it, really, I guess it, nothing much has changed. <laughs> no kidding. Now, do you almost wish that the book had come out a little earlier so that uh, more people could have read it and digested its contents before this uh, pandemic hit so that we might be a little better armed uh, against things like this and toward uh, pushing people in the right direction for public health? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had to do it all over again, I would have added a whole lot more. It, it was really boiled down and concise yeah, I mean, I've been doing research on, on the psychology of COVID-19 since December, really. Right. And of course, continuing to look into the historical record too. So there's a whole lot more that can be added. And what we're really looking at now is we have enough data and so forth for a new psychology of pandemics, which um, builds on the previous uh, stuff. So we've been doing research, trying to understand how all of these things, these phenomena are interconnected to one another. And um, in our research, we've been finding evidence of new syndromes that had previously not been documented. So, you know, if I'd known back then what I know now, it would have 
looked a little different, but you know, the, the interesting thing is there's been more research on pandemics conducted in the past 12 months, psychological research, than has been conducted for all other pandemics forever. Right. So, yeah. So we do, we do have um, enough data and, and new findings to really write a new psychology of pandemics that would so, build on the old one, but refine uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that research that you're doing now. Uh, do you have any concrete findings yet? Or do you, uh, are you moving towards something? And, and where are you focused uh, specifically? You said interconnectedness of various yeah. things. We've published about, um, I think, six or eight papers in 2020 from our research. And we have another five or so under review, looking at all kinds of different phenomena from vaccination non-adherence to mask rebellion to disregard to social distancing to um, various sorts of COVID-related emotional distress about how people are coping during lockdown. And we've been also running something called network analyses to understand how all of these things are interconnected. Uh, and it is fascinating. For example, if we just take some one idea, alcohol um, use. Back in the summer, um, it was a fad actually, back in the summer, uh, it was widespread to see people out walking in the streets with open liquor, at, oh. at least in, in Vancouver. Really? They'd have a, a can of beer on the... It, it just arose. It was as if people were thinking to themselves, special times, the rules don't apply, I'm stressed, I deserve a beer when I'm going for a stroll. <laughs> and, and, so, and there were more and more movements to um, open up the parks for open liquor. Uh, this was here, and there are arguments... There, and then there were arguments for the opposite. In other countries, they closed down liquor surprise. Mm -hmm. So we asked ourselves, well, how is this related to the various sorts of uh, psychological phenomena? And again, this is, again, a network analysis published uh, a few months ago. Drug and alcohol abuse are linked to traumatic stress symptoms about COVID. So if you're um, having a lot of nightmares about COVID because you've been reading too much sensationalistic news, things like that, you're going to be drinking is a form of self-medication. Conversely, this alcohol and drug abuse also leads to a disregard for social distancing, addition, inhibition. Right. So there was these complex uh, effects that we've been identifying. The other interesting thing we found is if you go back and look at previous pandemics, even back to, say, the uh, 1889 Russian flu or the 1919 so-called Spanish flu, you will describe descriptions of what is called flu phobia of people frightened of catching the flu if you go to um, say the 2009 uh, h1n1 the so-called swine flu pandemic again there was descriptions of what looked like a monophobia and similar studies of SARS and Ebola it, it, it looked like a, a monophobia but it was a, a matter of you were finding what you were expecting to find you were expecting it to be a phobia and so you were finding it and, but there were, there were clues back then that the syndrome was much broader. If you looked at SARS, a lot of people developed post-traumatic stress disorder, so intrusive thoughts. And of course, we know the research on contamination-related OCD. So when we were doing our COVID research, I asked myself the question, is this really a monophobia? This, is it really a coronophobia that we're talking about, or is it broader? And we did a bunch of studies and we found pretty solid evidence of what we're calling a COVID stress syndrome, which is a form of adjustment disorder with five components. Yeah, there's a fear of infection, but there's also the fear of the socioeconomic impact. There's xenophobia, which has been a feature of all previous outbreaks. Right. Um, 
compulsive checking and reassurance seeking about one's health and traumatic stress symptoms, that is nightmares, intrusive thoughts, and they all hang together in a syndrome. So sure, there's that phobic component, but it's way broader. So that's what one of the things that we've learned um, that it advances previous understandings, moving away from that monophobic view of psychopathology induced by a pandemic. And we're, we're thinking of this as being an adjustment disorder, although for some people, uh, some of these problems could persist after the pandemic is over, but time will tell. We've got to do more research to look at that. So, um, and, and again, it's been published in a bunch of studies now based on thousands of uh, cases from the United States and Canada. So th there's that syndrome. But we've also found another syndrome, and it's, it's like the, the complement that we're calling a COVID disregard syndrome. It's not a syndrome in a medical sense. It's a syndrome in a sense it's an interconnected set of attitudes and behaviours. So people with this syndrome, they think the, um, the whole COVID thing is exaggerated. They see their health as being robust against infection. You know, like President Bolsonaro in Brazil, it would just be like a little flu and I'll get over it because I'm awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> belief in conspiracy theories, uh, disregard for social distancing. So the people who have this, this um, syndrome disregard social distancing they don't they don't wash their hands or cover their coughs or wear masks they tend to be anti-mask anti-vax and politically conservative so that's right. another kind of syndrome sure we knew in previous pandemics that the disregard for social distancing was a problem even getting back to the 1918 pandemic uh, it, it was a problem where they would have to go down and shut down uh, bars and and so forth because people weren't socially distancing but we didn't know then that it hung together in a, in a syndrome. So that's a, another thing that's emerged out of our COVID research. And when you look at the people uh, who did develop this sort of phobia during the H1N1, and now you're saying it looks like it's not a monophobia, it's a larger thing. Did it go away when H1N1 went away or can you tell? We couldn't tell. Um, the research done back then was a, a slice in time that they didn't do any follow-up. And that gets to one of the other important things that have come out from our research and, and other studies that, as I pointed out in the book, pandemics are dynamic events. Um, and so the problem for researchers is a lot of these, the studies I'm seeing, it's just one slice in time and they're trying to extrapolate. Whereas if you look at say the longitudinal data opinion polls, for example, anxiety levels rise and fall um, depending to some extent on uh, the prevalence of infection in one's community. So you need to be really careful if you're going to do a, a single time point study about extrapolating. So we don't, getting back to your question, it's not clear what the long-term impacts for say um, a Zika virus phobia or so-called Ebola phobia or, or those sorts of things. But what we do know from our COVID research and previous research is the people who are most distressed during these pandemics tend to have pre-existing psychological problems, which is not really surprising. They tend to have pre-existing obsessive compulsive um, contamination concerns and checking and pre-existing health anxiety, um, pre-existing anxiety or mood disorders. And if you think about a pandemic as a, being a stressor, if we think about OCD and contaminated uh, relation OCD, we know it arises from a gene-environment interaction. So vulnerability genes interacting with a stressor, in this case a pandemic, will give rise to germophobia, as it were. So we would expect that for a proportion of these people who develop distress during this pandemic, it will be enduring unless they receive treatment. And we also know this from SARS, 
that there were a number of cases of people who got infected with SARS, who had to go into quarantine, who were frightened that they would die. After they recovered from SARS, they developed PTSD, which became chronic. So although people tend to be resilient, we do know that for a proportion of people, um, these problems will be persistent unless they receive treatment. I was thinking about SARS the other day, and I mean, I was quite young when it happened. And uh, the, the one thing that I remember about it is that I got to see the Rolling Stones in a park with two million other people, right? And, <laughs> and, and I was thinking... That, there must have been something vastly different about SARS than uh, than COVID, considering uh, there's no way you're putting two million people in a park to hold a fundraising concert today. Yeah, yeah. Well, SARS was um, way more lethal than COVID, but um, it, it was self-contained and it sort of burned itself out before even a vaccine could be developed. Mm-hmm. And one of the tenets of a lot of conspiracy theories that I see today is the vaccine and the fact that it's happened so quickly that uh, we've been able to find one. And there doesn't seem to be, I guess uh, there's not a lot of medical literacy um, among the general public where you can say, obviously this has been worked on for decades up until this point. And there was a, you know, uh, at least a process well along the way before, uh, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, stood on the shoulders of that research and created what they've created today. Um, is there a way that you would suggest talking to somebody who has that kind of belief? Or is it just uh, talking about other things and trying to get their mind off that particular? That's that's a million dollar question. And we've, we've published some studies on vaccination hesitancy around COVID-19. For some people, there's a kind of germ of truth to their concern. They'll say, well, you know, the US vaccine development program was called Operation Warp Speed, and that sounds a little too rushed, and maybe they were cutting corners. Right. Maybe it should have been called Operation Impulse Control Power and take it a bit slower. <laughs> uh, and then, and then uh, these people will also say, hang on, new virus, new vaccine, it doesn't have a track record. It can't have been, a, the vaccine can't have been tested for more than, say, eight months. We don't know the long term consequences. Do the risks outweigh the benefits. And this is, um, you know, a reasonably educated, reasonable sort of person will come up with this idea. Now, they're not the conspiracy theorist. For those sorts of individuals, they, they tend to take a wait and see approach. They are likely to come around to getting vaccinated when they, they might wait for the first 10,000 people to be vaccinated. Though actually, there's been way more than that vaccinated already now, and the data look pretty good. Right. So those sorts of people, you will be able to reason with and persuade and say, hey, yeah, look, addressing your concern, here are the Pfizer trial data, the rates of adverse events are extremely low and so forth. You'll be able to bring those people around. For the hardcore conspiracy theorists, the, um, the, it's almost an impossible challenge because as you, as you pointed out, the, these people, they, they tend to have suspicious minds. They tend to believe in multiple conspiracy theorists, theories. You know, if they believe that um, SARS-CoV-2 is a bioweapon, they'll also believe that NASA faked the moon landings, that uh, they'll also believe in the QAnon conspiracies and so, uh, those sorts right. of things. They tend to have that. They tend to be narcissistic. So they, they have this need to feel special. And what better way of feeling special but to adhere to what you think is secret knowledge that you have or your co-conspirators have this secret knowledge that the sheeple out there don't understand. So they're invested in holding on to their conspiracy theories. And they also have um, um, a low 
media literacy or lower than average media literacy. Now, granted, it's really hard these days to tell whether a news story is real news or something from the onion because there is a, a blurring. It's very much. Tell, yeah. uh, did Trump really say that or is this an onion article? Um, so it's, it's getting harder and harder for all of us to tell fake from true news. But if you're a conspiracy theorist, uh, you have even more difficulty telling. So you add that, they're, they're gullible. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm wondering that what might have happened in, say, QAnon is um, there, there are the internet trolls, right? These Machiavellian right. Joker-like characters that like to stir up trouble. I think that some of these conspiracy theories, the seeds were planted by trolls on these 4chan or 8chan bulletin boards planting these uh, like Pizzagate or um, these other sorts of conspiracies that the conspiracy theories and theorists are jumping in and adopting. Okay, so they're invested in believing these, um, these, these ideas. If I start to challenge them, you know, I start presenting them with evidence and start trying to prove to them that their theories are wrong, they will turn around and assume that I am part of the conspiracy. Right. So it's like, it's like a, an enclosed delusional system that it's difficult to penetrate. And so I'm not aware of any good data at this point that, that shows how you can treat or persuade conspiracy theorists. We know how you can make it worse, and that is to directly confront them and pre prevent them with data. And that will just cause outrage and, and anger and, and so forth. In some cases, uh, all you can do is agree to disagree with them. Right. Um, for, for other sorts of people who are exposed to the conspiracy theories and might not believe in them, you can inoculate them. So let's say the, the Bill Gates um, vaccine passport conspiracy theory that he's working with the new world order to depopulate the planet and take control. Right. I can present that, that idea to someone who's not a hardcore conspiracy theorist and I can say, this is, this is a wrong idea for the following reasons. So you can inoculate people. The problem with that is you're increasing the uh, attention to the conspiracy theory. You're, right. you're introducing people to these theories when you might think, well, the, these ideas, we just leave them in a silo. We, we shouldn't give them more attention than they deserve. So it is a challenging, tricky issue. No doubt. I, and I saw one just recently that just blew me away. And they have a diagram of the microchip that they're putting inside you with the vaccine and and so on, and it says coronavirus on it. And I thought somebody has to actually have created that. It turns out it's a schematic for a, a bass guitar amp, the actual chip, right? But somebody had to actually take that schematic, put the words coronavirus on it, and intentionally put it out there for, you know, and that's the person I don't understand, really, is the, you know? They are fascinating. They are the internet trolls. And there's been a lot of research on the personality characteristics of internet trolls. They tend to have what's called negative social potency. They, they're just like the classic Joker villain. They create, they have, they experience delight in baiting people, in stirring up mischief. Um, they tend to be psychopathic and lacking in empathy, but they get a kick out of, uh, out of creating mischief. I guess it gets them a sense of power as well. So I think you, when trolls meet conspiracy theorists, you get this proliferation of these um, these bizarre ideas. Um, but yeah, the, the trolls are the ones who get a kick out of creating these things. And they're also the people who were behind, way back in early in the pandemic, around about May, I think, there were some fake, a lot of fake images getting around. You probably saw the bat soup one, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, the bat, I mean, everything goes so fast. I wonder how many people remember bat soup. 
um, that the images of this young Chinese woman eating bat soup, and you could see the bat in the soup, and this was used to fuel racism. This was troll behavior. It turns out she wasn't from China or Wuhan. She was in a, on a Pacific uh, group of atolls called Palau in the South Pacific. Right. Uh, it was taken years ago. So these are trolls doing this thing. Or at about the same time, they were circulating images of um, the canals of Venice being crystal clear with dolphins right, with playing the dolphins. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was fake as well. That was from the south of France, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, or the, uh, you know, but, uh, or the, the other one at the time was the, the drunken elephants in the apple orchard who supposedly broke into the Wuhan apple orchard and ate all the fermented apples, got drunk and, and fell asleep. They went viral because they created good feelings for people. Yay, right. this lockdown, something good is happening out of this. Yeah. Um, so, so you've got trolls who create this stuff and then for various other reasons, things go viral and there's a psychology to what goes viral. Um, the things that go viral tend to be things that stir up emotions. In the case of the drunken elephants or the crystal clear canals, it, it creates a good feeling, that, oh, something good is happening. But more generally, um, these things go viral because they spark moral outrage. I mean, right. people forward um, images of people fighting over toilet paper so that gets to the whole idea that all these things are, are complex and interconnected. You've got trolls seeding these things, creating mischief. You've got the psychology of what makes things go, pand uh, go viral on social media. And then you've got the conspiracy theorists who are looking for patterns that don't exist, looking for patterns in the noise or meaning who might latch onto um, fake uh, theories created by trolls and then start to disseminate them. And then you add to that political leaders who use those series to their own ends. So uh, it, it's, it's fascinating as research, but it's also complicated and really important from a, um, a social perspective for managing pandemics. No doubt. Now, what got you, what got you into this field of research in the first place? Uh, obviously, it was many years went into the original book. What was the path that took you uh, to writing that in the first place? Um, my background for the longest time has been anxiety disorders. So I've been working and doing research and clinical practice, um, uh, research into the etiology, say cognitive mechanisms, uh, genetics as well, and treatments. So that included OCD, health anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I already had an interest in health anxiety. Then in 2018, I started seeing more and more news reports where they were interviewing um, virologists and, and disease modelers and epidemiologists because it was the centenary of the so-called Spanish flu. Mm. And at the centenary, they were interviewing all these people. And I started reading these interviews and they're all predicting that, yes, there will be uh, a pandemic coming in the next decade or so. Uh, they're all predicting at that point it would be an influenza pandemic. So we've got that to look forward to at some point. Um, so I started reading that and, and I thought, wow, this is interesting. Has anyone looked at all the, the psychology of this? Because I thought, I imagine a pandemic as well, there's going to be a rise of distress and social disruption. And then I started looking at how these pandemics managed um, and how did these diseases spread. Then I realized it's all psychological. Psychology is essential to the spread of these diseases. That is people choosing to travel and also essential to containment because all the containment measures uh, require people to do stuff who are agree to do things like agree to wash your hands, agree to cover your coughs, agree to get vaccinated, agree to wear a mask, agree to engage in social distancing. And if for whatever reason you choose not to do that, it's going to be so much harder to um, 
to manage a pandemic. So when I looked at all that in 2018, I realized that the, the literature was just scattered everywhere. Um, no one had ever put it all together. I thought, and, and this is actually an important topic. Uh, it's not just some intellectual exercise. It's something with practical significance because there will be another pandemic and no one has, has really thought about how all of these elements come into play and how they're important in managing the pandemics. And the more I looked at it, the more it, it seemed to me that there are really two main aspects to managing pandemics. One is yeah, getting people to do things that limit the spread of infection. But the other thing is managing the anxiety levels of the stress levels of the population. Mm -hmm. If you read the top doctor in New York during the 1918 pandemic, uh, Royal S. Copeland, uh, there's an interview with him in the New York Times in 1918. He said his one of his biggest concerns was preventing mass panic. So he wanted to keep people calm and was as that was in his mind. He was implementing social distancing, but he had those dual goals in mind. Keep people calm, but make them pay attention to the seriousness of, it's a balancing act. Right. So I, I realized in, in putting all this together, wow, this is immensely important psychologically. It's complicated and no one has ever put it together. So I started working on this and then I took it to my publisher, I won't tell you who he is, uh, he, but he's been publishing my previous books. And I said, um, oh, look, and I, I, I'd already written most of the book and I sent him the outline and, the, and the, the, the synopsis. He looked at it and he rejected it. He said, right. oh, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but no one's going to want to read about this stuff. <laughs> so he epitomized the short-sightedness that many of us uh, fall into. Now, the Trump administration dismantled their pandemic preparedness program in 2019 right. before it, it occurred. Again, the short-sightedness. Oh, we don't need that. Uh, let's, let's use those funds for something else. Mm. Well, my publisher, oh, yeah, interesting idea, psychology panics. Yeah, no one's going to want to know about that. Interesting, but irrelevant. Right. Uh, and, of course, he's kicking himself now. I found another publisher and, and quite quickly found another publisher and, and got the book published. So that's, I guess, that in a nutshell, that's what got me to, to write the book. Right at the right time. And, and it strikes me that one of the things, and I've been talking to a lot of people over the last little while for this Psychology Month thing, and uh, a lot of students have sent me in some uh, audio recordings that they've done uh, for a project in one of their classes. And very often, the topic that students, I guess, in first year, uh, you know, undergrad psychology want to talk about is bystander apathy. And so they talk about the story of Kitty Genovese and all that, uh, you know, turns out not really to be true. Right? Yeah. But you cite Typhoid Mary in your book, one of those stories from ages and ages ago, that turns out to actually be true, right? Yeah. This, this woman, Mary Mallon, actually did, you know, continue working as a cook, in a number of different houses. And despite overwhelming evidence that she was infecting everyone in the house, every time she went there, she refused to believe that it was possible that she could be a carrier of typhoid. Right. And I think that might be one of those historic psychological cases that might not get the attention it deserves uh, just in terms of, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the psychology of that particular thing where all the evidence is presented, but you can't, it's hugely important and relevant, and it, has to, it gets to the issue of motivated reasoning. And Mary didn't want to believe that she was a carrier, um, and she, want, she enjoyed being a cook. That's all she wanted to do is be a cook. And it 
was unfortunate that she was one of those rare individuals that was an asymptomatic carrier who was shedding virus like crazy. And, but in her own mind, she said, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know, I'm not sick. So it was motivated reasoning, which is an version of wishful thinking. And we're seeing that during um, this pandemic, all kinds of ways, particularly the people who think, oh, it's okay if I go out to a party or um, go to a nightclub, um, I'm young, I won't get sick, it's no big deal. So the wishful thinking of wanting, wanting something to be a particular way. And so we, we are in a situation where we are seeing super spreading events, um, not quite as dramatic as Typhoid Mary or Mary Malone, but we are seeing them. Oh, just one thing I want to add, just a little footnote. We talked about all the things that unfolded. It was interesting. This morning I was doing a, an interview with a journalist and she said to me that she spoke to me back in February 2019. And I said, yeah. And she reminded me, she, she said, you said back then that we'd all be wearing masks soon. <laughs> that was at a time when the WHO was saying, no, 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 you don't need to wear masks. Um, save them for the healthcare workers. She reminded me that I said back then, yeah, we'd all be wearing masks once this virus gets um, in the community. And at that time, there were two cases in Canada. And I said, yeah, and that's not through any clairvoyance. It's just a matter of understanding the pattern of how things have unfolded and the research. If there are enough cases in the community, it would be uh, wise for people to wear masks. But I guess that gets to a, another human phenomenon. We have a lot of difficulty imagining the future. Who would have thought a year ago we'd all be in, uh, there'd be curfew in Quebec, or that we'd be wearing masks, or that there'll be protest rallies about wearing masks, or that it would be no big deal if I've got my keys, my phone, my wallet, my mask. Um, so we have a lot of difficulty imagining the future. And I think we're going to see that uh, unfold in various ways with this pandemic, because there is the question of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a heuristic, it's the anchoring bias. We base our predictions of the future based on how we're feeling right now. When I ask people, what do you think life is going to be like in a post-pandemic world? People, people assume it's going to be a bit like this, only not quite as grim. They think, right. oh, well, we're going to be all germphobic and still wearing masks. And I think I say to those people, I think you're wrong. People are resilient. People are going to bounce back. We're going to see um, people, uh, most people, not everyone, but most people, life will return to normal. People will go out and partying. They'll get in crowds of 2 million people seeing the Rolling Stones, if the Rolling Stones are still rolling. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they will be they, for 80 more what, years. Or... <laughs> Dodge darts, cockroaches, and Keith Richards. They're the, the three things that will outlast <laughs> nuclear war, everything. That's um, right. Anyway, um, we will bounce back. But given our anchoring bias and our difficulty imagining the future, we, we don't see that right now. But if, if you look at Wuhan... Uh, the reports from Wuhan, Wuhan is now party central. There are the nightclubs are open, people are out there um, in, uh, uh, partying and celebrating. It just shows human resilience and how people do bounce back, but how we have difficulty imagining that future. You come across then as uh, the sort of Canadian psychological pandemic Nostradamus in the sense that you can remember the the way history rhymes uh, up until today, right? Now, how has this affected you personally? Uh, you working from home? Are you, uh, you know, you saw some of it coming. You knew where we'd end up uh, at least a little better than most of us. Uh, were you more prepared than the rest of us for this? Uh, yes and no. Um, in the early stages, it, it, the whole thing had, um, I, I've experienced this pandemic 
in a fundamentally different way than most people. Mm -hmm. um, it was a surreal experience during the early phases to see all of this stuff that I, you know, it's one thing to write about it in an abstract way. It's a different thing altogether to live it. And right. I started to see all this stuff unfold and I started at this, uh, oh, wow, it, it is happening just as it happened in the past. And I remember at one point in um, April or May thinking, well, wait a minute, what happened to the rise of altruism, which was a feature of past pandemics and mm -hmm. people trying to take control over their lives and finding that helping other people uh, was a way. And then shortly after that was the rise of the 7 p.m. cheer. Right. I, I, I was actually relieved by that because I thought, well, what if we're just a more cynical version of 1918 and there isn't that rise of altruism? But I was gratified that there is. But how has that affected me personally? Um, well, just like everyone else, uh, everything is digital these days. Um, everything is via Zoom, clinical work, teaching, interviews, and all the research is, is online as well. Uh, we were very lucky because we were well positioned when all the university labs were closed down in early 2019. Ours was up and running because um, we used the book as a foundation to write a research grant to get funding to do internet-based research on COVID-19. So we were collecting data as of March 2019 on thousands of people. Um, personally, I've been living and breathing COVID-19 since... December of 2018, no, right. 2019. 19, yes. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, it all blurs. And so it, it is all blurry, but uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, this past 14 months, I've never been busier. Uh, I've got more research than I can realistically write up. There's all, all the other the sorts of things, uh, the, the teaching and so forth. So what I've had to do is sort of take some of my own advice. And when everyone was setting New Year's resolutions, mine was to play more and work less. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> and how's that worked out so far? Not very well, actually. <laughs> um, I'm still working on it. <laughs> now, what do you do when you go play? What uh, Do you have a sport? Do you go outside? What's, uh, what's there to do in Vancouver right now? Um, scuba diving. Oh, nice. That's my big passion. Scuba diving and underwater photography. Um, and pre-pandemic, I used to like to travel a lot to, um, so actually um, in December, 2019, just as the pandemic was starting out, I was in the Galapagos scuba diving. But oh, wow. for this past year, it's been some local dives. So I haven't been able to get out as much as I want. And of course there's, a, if you get on a dive boat, it's hard to socially distance. So there's been a reduction in my scuba diving, but I'm looking forward to getting to doing more of that um, around Vancouver. Yeah. And what, what is around Vancouver? There's shipwrecks. Uh, what kind of things do you go and, and see when you're scuba diving there? Um, there, there are shipwrecks and there are um, um, reefs and there are these vast structures called cloud sponges, which are these little silicate uh, intricate sponges which have all kinds of marine life and uh, well, one of the things I'm interested in is super macro photography photographing teeny tiny things like little colorful sea slugs and okay stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I am looking forward to eventually um, uh, when the travel restrictions lift I'm I'm booked on a trip to South Africa in June 
um, doing a thing called the sardine run where these sardines migrate up the coast of Africa and everything feeds on sardines, sharks, dolphins, gannets, whales, and you go out in a boat and you dive into these sardine bait balls and you photograph all the, the mayhem happening. So that, that's my dream that in June that that will happen. I, I'm starting to doubt that that will actually happen. I think I'll probably still be in Vancouver photographing teeny tiny sea slugs uh, <laughs> instead. <laughs> well, great. I hope you get a chance to play. And uh, I know that it's been an incredibly busy year for you, maybe more so than even the rest of us. So thank you for taking some time uh, out of your day to speak to me. You're very welcome, Eric. Thanks very much. That does it for this episode of Mindful, the first in our spring series, Psychology and COVID. Over the course of the month, we'll be speaking with psychologists from many disciplines, some dealing with the effects of COVID on their patients, others researching our response to the pandemic. Mindful is written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music is Avenues by Dave Taylor in Toronto. <laughs>